I would like to welcome you, uh, everybody, to, to the Atlantic uh, Council and the duration uh, 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 program here. And my name is Anders Rosen, I'm a senior fellow here, and uh, Julie John will uh, moderate our program today. Yes. Uh, once again, we thank you for coming this afternoon to the Atlantic Council. Uh, I would like to welcome you to the Dino Patricio uh, Eurasia Center here at the Council. Um, we have a really terrific lineup of distinguished experts on the Russian economy, and um, our goal is to try and assess how deep the crisis is in Russia. Sixteen years ago, Vladimir Putin entered the Kremlin uh, and completed a number of important reforms that hadn't been done before, right? including privatizations, tax reform, and he helped to usher in a period of foreign investment that was coupled with uh, emerging uh, and growing oil prices and a commodity boom globally. And today we find ourselves uh, in a situation where Russia is entering its second year of recession and not only hobbled by uh, the current uh, environment of very low oil prices, but also still suffering from uh, stagnation that was taking place for a number of years even before this low oil price uh, period. So before we get into the panel discussion where uh, each of our speakers will speak for about eight to ten minutes with um, their own interventions, uh, followed by a Q&A, I would also like to note that this event today is on the record. And um, also, if you could uh, uh, please uh, wait until the end for your questions, we will try and make sure that everyone has a chance to participate. Um, but let me uh, start with uh, some introductions. Uh, you have very detailed bios of everyone here, but um, we'll start, uh, we're actually going to have a speaking order starting with uh, Sergey, and then with Cliff, uh, then Slava and Anders will uh, finish it off. But um, oh, let me just point out some highlights in everyone's background. So uh, Sergey, for many years, has been uh, serving not only the, the, the Russian government, but um, serving in the private sector and in academia as an expert on, on the Russian economy. And he served as deputy chairman of the Central Bank of Russia under Boris Yeltsin. And he was also Merrill Lynch's chairman of, uh, of the Russian operation in 2006 to 2008. Sergei most recently uh, was known for uh, being a critic of the Putin administration and was compelled to step down from uh, providing commentary on the situation in Russia. Um, but he continues to uh, be influential uh, as a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And Cliff is also with the Brookings Institution. He uh, has also advised uh, uh, Russian governments in the past on the economic situation there. Um, at the Brookings Institution, he's focused on Russia, but also has written many books uh, and articles on broader topics of transitional economies. And his newest book, uh, which I'm very excited to, to hear more about, is called Russia's Addiction, How Oil, Gas, and the Soviet Legacy Has have shaped the nation's fate. This will be coming out uh, in the summer of this year. Uh, the next speaker will be uh, Slava. Vladislav uh, Inosemsev, he is with um, the Higher School of Economics. He's a professor of economics there. And he's also a veteran of the uh, journal scene in, in Russia, commenting on the situation um, from a very honest point of view. And he has also authored, over the last uh, 25 years or so, 14 different books and published 400 different articles that have been 
published all around the world. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, my colleague Anders Asland, uh, who is now at the Atlantic Council as a senior fellow in the Eurasia Center. Um, but but uh, I know Anders going back to his days at the Peterson Institute, where he also wrote about Russia and Ukraine for many years. Um, but, but Anders has really been around uh, as an expert in many different venues, in the Carnegie Endowment, and, and also serving as a Swedish diplomat and as an advisor to uh, the Russian and Ukrainian governments in the 1990s. So without further ado, I'll hand it off to Sergei. Uh, we'd love to hear from you first, and then uh, we'll <coughs> Anders. Okay, it's, that is the same. Yeah, so I, I see my screen the same as you see, just easy. <laughs> it's not, not something different. So, nevertheless, we agreed with Anders that at the end I will argue all his arguments, despite what he says and despite what I say. <laughs> just, just to have some fun, yes, no, 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 uh, How deep is Russian economic crisis? Uh, to my mind, it is very deep. And it has not started. Yesterday, it has not started in 2015, 2014, 2013. It has started at the very end of the 2011. You see uh, on this chart, the red line is accumulated growth of GDP of Russia, starting from uh, first quarter of 2008. And uh, at the very end, uh, in 2014-15, Russian agency Rostat started to add Crimea uh, uh, data to Russian GDP, and that's why the end of this line is above 100. I've noticed that it's below 100. So last seven years of Vladimir Putin's re uh, residence, I don't know, rule of Russia, is zero growth. So it's really a crisis. That is the crisis. Not the crisis that the Russian economy has uh, fallen down by 3.7% uh, last year, but the crisis is much longer. There is general mistrust in his policy. There is a general problem of lack of uh, property rights protection, and there is poor investment climate, and economic uh, economy started to deteriorate in the very beginning of 2012. And despite all the crisis, despite sanctions, despite Crimea, despite Ukraine, Russian economy was uh, sh sh should should go down, should go down, and that is the crisis, and it's long lasting, and uh, it's not very easy to overcome. Uh, the uh, statistically, the uh, result of this year were not so bad. Uh, finally, uh, I remember Anders uh, a year ago was debating that Russian economy should fall something like 8 to 10 percent. Myself, I was saying about 5 to 6 percent. Nevertheless, the result is much better, less than 4 percent. And it seems it seems rather good. That means Russian economy is stable. The Russian economy is good. Nevertheless, if you look on the breakdown on uh, the uh, components of GDP global dem uh, demand, you will see that domestic demand, that means public consumption, private, private consumption, investment and stock accumulation, resulted virtually minus 10% of GDP. That is the crisis. It is much deeper than it was in 2008-2009, and the only rapid growth of uh, uh, net export uh, resulted in uh, the number of 3.7 below 4%. Nevertheless, don't be surprised by net export growth. Net export means export minus import. Export was stable. It grew something like 0.2, 0.3%. And the result, the positive impact of net export is the decline in import. So that is the picture of uh, 2015. And definitely, it's not as favorable as many would like to see. But there is a big difference between this crisis and the crisis of 2008, 2009. That was rather short, and you see, for example, this is industrial production 
and in both cases uh, the line starts in June either of 2008 or 2014 and then it drops sharply in 2008-2009 uh, uh, mainly due to the decline in the global demand for Russian raw materials. The, de the demand for oil, for refineries, for metals fell sharply. Uh, for example, uh, freight turnover of Russian railways by December 2008 fell by 30%. Industrial production fell by 15%. But it recovered rather soon, as soon as oil prices recovered. This year, we see that industry is much in better shape, seems in much better shape. But the, the main difference in industrial production is that starting from 2012, Russia has implemented a huge, huge, huge program of military procurement. And the impact of military procure, the procurement is very difficult to measure. Uh, on average, uh, the assumption is that the military production is something like approximately one-third of industrial output. And uh, it, industrial and military production is growing something like 10 to 12 to 15 percent year over year. So don't be surprised that Russian industrial production is not falling down. Nevertheless, it is resulting in, the result is military production. <coughs> but what is really different, another story, is uh, private consumption and real wages. You see virtually the straight line going down with small uh, turbulence at the end of 2014, beginning of 15. Nevertheless, that is the main price, the households are main, the main, main, main price of this <coughs> Private consumption fell by 10%, and it seems it will continue to grow. And that is the difference. In 2008-2009, government implemented a huge uh, fiscal stimulus concentrated to a great extent on increasing wages, increasing pensions, social benefits. This year, nothing was done. Virtually, even vice versa, Russian government has frozen the public wages. The Russian government refused to index pensions in 2016. So that is the biggest difference between those two prices. Russian economy is fully dependent. And it's, it's obvious many will, will say that. And you see this, this is a correlation between oil price and uh, the exchange rate of the ruble for <coughs> three years. And uh, that means that nothing keeps Russian national currency except of oil price. As soon as oil price will go up, ruble will stabilize and maybe will go up as well. As soon as oil price will go down, the same will do the ruble. The, the, and that is uh, that makes us very difficult to, to call experts to predict, to forecast the future growth of the Russian economy. Because if oil prices will stabilize at level, say, say 35, it will be one result. If it will stabilize at level $40 per barrel, another story. If it will fall below 30, third story. And that's why the oil is the main factor in determining the short forecast, what will happen next year or what will happen this year. But uh, oil dependence of the Russian economy results in two major phenomena. First is uh, fueling of inflation. Uh, last year, uh, in, in the recent uh, two years, ruble have, was developed by more than two times. And uh, despite statistics, statistics says that, the official statistics says, that inflation, accumulated inflation, I'd say 12, 12 months accumulated inflation in Russia is going down. Nevertheless, three months and six months floating inflation is going up starting from summer. And uh, ruble is continuing to develop. And what is more dangerous is inflation expectations, the red line on this chart, is going straight up. 
So people do not trust that inflation is going down, and people see that ruble is devaluing. People anticipate that there will be uh, higher prices in the shops, and government and the central bank can cannot stop it. And this fueling of inflation expectation is a very strong phenomenon that will result in higher inflation than government anticipates. But as a result of this, uh, of course, uh, real real incomes and real consumption of households in uh, this year will decline faster than many anticipate. So uh, households will pay price one. Another story: what is important for uh, for the Russian uh, for for devaluing ruble and oil prices is uh, pressure on the budget. Uh, for many years, you see this between green and pink line, uh, the ruble price of Russian exported oil was fluctuating between 3,000 and 3,500 and 3,500 rubles per barrel. And the government was adjusted to this level. And suddenly, uh, despite uh, oil price felt more significantly, ruble price of the oil felt as well. And that is the reason, that is the reason for problems of the federal budget, that economy was able to find a balance with the exchange rate of the ruble today, let's say about uh, 80, slightly below 80 rubles per dollar, while for the federal budget, what is needed to keep its revenues uh, flat, it needed 100 or even more rubles per dollar. So that's, the economy has adjusted, but budget has not. And that will be the main story of 2016, uh, what the government will do with the budget, Will it go to increase taxes? Will it cut expenditures? Will it increase deficit? And how is it going to finance by privatization, by um, printing money by the central bank? And that, that's the main story. The prospect for 2016, I would uh, formulate as follows that frozen wages and high inflation uh, will result in further decline in private consumption. Uh, low oil price will lead to a certain type of budgetary crisis, not maybe as severe as uh, many would anticipate. But uh, as well, it will result in cuts in imports, further cuts in import and ruble devaluation. Uh, what is very important, if I come back uh, to uh, this, uh, this table, you see the very low numbers of uh, for investment decline in 2015. Uh, the discovery of this story says very simple. In 2015, many Russian oil companies have finalized their investment programs in their finances. Uh, so, uh, Russian, uh, Russian legislation introduced from the beginning of this year uh, required high environmental standards, Euro 5, so on, for gasoline. And that's why last year uh, oil companies invested heavily in order to, to fulfill their commitments, investment commitments. This year, the statistical base will be high, while investments will be low. And that's why I anticipate that this year result for investment will be much poorer than for the previous year. Of course, no one anticipate political reform. No one anticipate that uh, property rights uh, protection, uh, property rights will be protected better this year than previously. And as well, the last point is that in my mind, Western sanctions uh, stopped to uh, influence Russian economy in the short run. So, in the current regime, with oil prices of 30 to 35 dollars per barrel, oil uh, prohibition for Russian companies to use foreign technology in Arctic shale drilling where costs will uh, well above 100, it's useless. Uh, as well as the pressure of the financial sanctions is declining. But what is really important for the Russian economy, and it will play more and more role in the coming years, if sanctions uh, will stay, 
stable Russian economy will be more and more isolated from uh, international uh, business relations. So Russia today is not attractive for many foreign businessmen, for European and for American businessmen, they, they prefer not to invest in Russia in the new project. And if sanctions continue, that will result in through the technological devaluation of Russia. So that's it. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Julie. Uh, thank all of you for coming. It's an honor to be here, especially with these distinguished colleagues. I debated when I was preparing my remarks whether I should talk about numbers about the Russian economy or say something more general, and uh, Sergei has taken care of the numbers, so I don't do that. And, and actually, these are very uh, accurate, important numbers in my opinion, so I may actually refer to them. But what I really wanted to do was focus on uh, a more fundamental discussion of what are the factors, what are the fundamental factors that influence Russia's current performance, both and in short and, and, and longer term economic future. And I think no discussion makes sense without taking into account three fundamental factors, the first of which Sergei has emphasized, the oil price. It's very obvious. I think by now people understand that the world oil price is of paramount importance. Um, Second, less appreciated perhaps, is the legacy of Russia's Soviet past. I'll say a few remarks about that. And the third point is the political dimension, the, what I call the security centrism of all Russian policy, including economic policy. It has a real impact on, on, on the economy, on the future of the economy. They're all of paramount importance, and I think they're more important than other things that are important. It's just not as important as this, the, the, the so-called reform ideas, the necessity for um, institutional reform, rule of law, you name it, all of the things that we would love to see. But in fact, those are constrained by the three that I mentioned. Uh, one of these factors that I mentioned, the oil, the legacy, and the security centrism, I think is quite permanent, and that's the, that's the legacy. Uh, the other, the oil price, of course, is highly volatile. It's uncertain, and it's beyond the control of the Russians. The third, the security concerns, the security obsession, if you like, is neither constant nor volatile, and it's actually the only one that's really subject to any substantial influence from inside and outside of Russia. So let me look at these three things in, in turn. Um, obviously, the oil has, I, I cannot overemphasize how important oil is, and, and Sergei points it out, you can't predict anything about the Russian economy unless you lay out a scenario for the oil price. At that point, you can, and, and you should. But to just abstractly talk about something that's going to happen to GDP incomes or any other parameter of the Russian economy without specifying what oil price are you talking about is fairly meaningless to me. Um, a high oil price, a rising oil price, up to a high oil price, means a windfall gain for Russia. And I think Russia and Russians are all wealthier and all sorts of good things happen. And that's what happened up until 2000, 2008 and uh, The problem, of course, is the volatility, the uncertainty. There are ways to deal with that. Um, they're not easy ways, and they're not perfect ways, but there are ways to deal with it. Uh, what I do not agree with is the idea that there's something fundamentally wrong with Russia's oil dependence, and that Russia needs to exert all sorts of efforts to try to get rid of its uh, oil dependence and diversify away from oil. You've got to instead think about how you cope with the downside of oil, take advantage of this fantastic wealth that it brings. Second point on this legacy, the what I'm talking about is the structural legacy, not the uh, ideology or the mentality or all that. I'm talking about physical things that were done to the Russian economy in 60 to 70 years of communist rule. Location of cities, factories, 
where people live, where people work, uh, where economic activity is conducted, in very cold and remote regions that no other, no market economy in the world would have built the cities there, would not have built the factories there. However, they're there, and they are a burden. They are like a tax on Russian GDP every year. Uh, and in a way, maybe we don't even have to consider this, because you're not going to get rid of this. There's almost nothing you can do to get rid of it in the short term, even the middle term. It's just always going to be there, so it's not a variable factor. It's just going to always be a 1% or 1.5% or whatever tax on GDP. But it is very important to know this because this structural legacy and the fact that you have a drain on the economy that has to be covered, subsidized, uh, means that there are constraints, there are impermissibility constraints, if you like, politically, on things that you otherwise would say are obvious things to do to fix the Russian economy. But you can't do them, and you won't be able to do them. Thirdly, and this is a little bit of the same, to the extent that Russian leadership, Russian population, is concerned about its security, military security, economic security, political security, there are also constraints on what sort of uh, measures, what sort of policies, what sort of reforms can be undertaken. This, however, as I pointed out earlier, is, is their variability here. Russians are not always as obsessed with security as they are now. It's this perception that they are surrounded, uh, they are under siege, and, uh, and, and, and they have to think primarily about that. And right now, that takes manifests itself in the primary concern, not on the military side, not even on the economic side, despite our sanctions, but on the fear of political instability. Uh, and Putin has, President Putin has expressed it that way, that that's the real, the real fear. Um, again, I talked about the policies you could do to deal with, uh, deal with any of these constraints. Uh, forget the legacy, you're not going to do much with it, it's not even worth thinking that much about. And as I said, on the oil, the key there, of course, is to figure out ways to uh, to even out, to smooth out the volatility. And you do that through primarily through such measures as creating the oil funds that Russia did. In retrospect, you know, hindsight is 2020. He did a good job. Kudrin did a great job when he went to Norway and studied their system and <coughs> came back. I'm sure Sergei was, was, was key in this as well, uh, to set up the oil funds in Russia, to try to have the rainy day fund, the, the, the reserve, what's now the reserve fund, and the national welfare fund. Um, but who thought oil would be at 30? $30 a barrel, uh, the, the real pessimists were thinking maybe it'll go down to like 80 or 70 or maybe 60. So, yeah, in retrospect, should have put more in there, should have, should have, you know, estimated the price better, but who can do that? We'd all be billionaires if we could do that. Um, thirdly, the security concerns. Again, I, I, I point out that this is something that can be influenced, it is subject, it's volatile in the sense that there are forces that are changing that. Um, we have a responsibility as well as the Russians. The security constraint is very tight right now, and I think that the worst economic uh, consequence uh, is not the direct effect of our sanctions. They do impact the Russian economy, of course, when you're denied free access to, to credits and investment and so forth. This has an impact on the economy. But the main uh, negative consequence is that it really prevents any significant reform of the economy, because if you're under siege, you're at war, you're not going to be uh, doing things that are necessarily disruptive socially and politically inside the country. It's, it's impermissible. My bottom line quickly is uh, on four points. Economic performance of Russia, the domestic political situation, Russia's geopolitical stance, and the prospects for reform, because I know people 
think about the, both the domestic political situation and the stability of, of Russia. On economic performance, I've said what I need to say there. You tell me what the oil price is, I can pretty much tell you what's going to happen to the Russian economy. It's as simple as that. Um, the question for the future, I think, will be this one. Has the leadership learned about the previous uh, bubble, the, 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 the high oil prices that could go so low? What will happen the next round, and if you like, in the next boom and bust, the next phase of the boom and bust cycle? So that's question mark. On the domestic political situation, I think there's, of course, as you know, much wishful thinking that there will be some sort of collapse of the Russian economy and, quote, the end of Putin. I don't think that's very likely. First of all, economies almost never collapse, and I don't think Russia's will. Uh, Russia right now, people talk about all this hardship in Russia and decline in consumption and so forth. It's so far away from the hardship of the 1990s. Basically, what I mean, it's like the hardship that Americans endured when our bubble housing prices collapsed. Okay, yeah, we weren't as rich on paper as we thought we were. We had overconsumed. We borrowed against <laughs> value that wasn't there. Okay, you pay a price. That's what happens in bubbles. And in a way, Russia's years, that, that decade before the oil price decline in 2008, 2009, was a bubble. Okay, and maybe Russians will realize this, maybe not. I tend to think that they kind of do, because the uh, polls, Sergey wrote about this in a blog a couple of days, the, the sociological polls show that Russians are very pessimistic about the future. I think that's probably a good sign for the regime. That's probably what they would like the, the Russians to be pessimistic, not optimistic about the future. It's also kind of a good sign about the intelligence of Russians. I mean, who could be <coughs> optimistic about the future when you look at what's going on? So um, I, I think what's important to realize is, despite what some people seem to think, or at least imply, there's no mechanical consequence where economic hardship leads to political upheaval. There's so many other factors involved. Primarily, what's the legitimacy? I mean, under what circumstances is this hardship being endured? Is it wartime? London and the Blitz? That was a lot of hardship. Did they rise up and overthrow Churchill? No. It's, it's, it's the context. And another context, contextual factor that's very important, I think, for Russians, which may be relevant, very relevant in Russia today, is the perception of, is the burden being shared? Is the burden being shared, or is, am I, working class Joe, Elon, am I bearing the brunt and those guys up at the top aren't? So that's why issues about corruption and perceptions of the oligarchs and so forth uh, do matter. But I think what we should have learned over past uh, years, if not decades, is that it's very difficult to predict when political upheavals happen. They certainly could happen in Russia, but I'm not willing to say that it will automatically happen because of a certain level of economic collapse. Um, by the way, political upheaval in Russia would be very bad for the economy uh, because it's not a democracy and the response would be either total breakdown or uh, harsh autocracy. Uh, on the other hand, the measures that the regime is now taking to prevent these political upheavals are also very bad for the economy, so there's not a real win situation there. Quickly on the geopolitical stance, the wishful thinkers, again, would say the economic crisis will tend to hold Russia in check. It, quote, can't afford, unquote, to continue its recent <coughs> behavior and so on. Unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, first of all, Russia's actions so far and its geopolitical actions have been fairly cheap. Uh, obviously, budgets matter for everything, every decision, but um, Economic difficulties are not going to cause the Russian leadership to renounce its overall objectives. They will only ch cause them to change their tactics and methods. And mainly these will be cheaper methods. And cheaper methods, at least in Russia, tend to be uglier, dirtier, and riskier, and that's not good. 
Finally, the prospects of reform, very poor. Look, reform, economic reform, especially in the Russian context, anywhere it is, the, of the magnitude we're talking about, is very costly in terms of money and in terms of political risk. We have a combination now facing Russia. Low oil and gas rents, low oil and gas prices means you don't have the money. And secondly, this uh, security obsession, the fear of political and social instability, mean you're not going to launch reforms that dis are disruptive exactly at a point when you are uh, uh, most worried about unity, political, and social culture. So these militate against reforms. However, if and when oil prices rise, and if and when the geopolitical standoff between Russia and the West eases, then I think re reform is still a possibility. And so we can't give up on it. Um, we, we just have to observe. But I think the question then will be, I kind of hinted at this, is whether the leadership and the population in the next phase of the oil boom-bust boom cycle has learned its lessons from the previous round, and can it avoid this sort of bubble mentality and really try to think in the long term uh, of how to cope with and how to manage uh, the oil and the oil rents? Thank you. Thank you. And now, Slava. Uh, thank you so much for, for asking uh, to, to end us for inviting me here. <clears throat> of course, after uh, such two brilliant presentations, it's not uh, too much to add. Uh, I would say that I completely agree with uh, the most part of uh, Sergei and Chris's uh, presentation. So what we have now in Russia, we have really um, a prolonged economic crisis, which erupted actually uh, in late 2011, or actually maybe more, you'll be more precise to say in early 2012, when Mr. Putin <coughs> returned to the Kremlin, he issued his famous decrees on the 7th of May, uh, asking for, requiring actually for uh, new, more elevated wages for many social servants, uh, pronouncing a new budget uh, uh, spending for military and for other needs. So in this case, it was completely unrealistic uh, to to announce such a program, but Putin did it. Uh, and of course, uh, the Russian businesses, they understood quite well that it uh, will come at the expense of not so much population, but the expense of businesses, uh, because it will be a hike in taxes, uh, it will be all, all the problems of Russian economy will be switched to the business environment. And from this time on, you see uh, decrease in investment, uh, you see uh, a huge capital outflow, outflow from Russia. And of course, all these uh, developments accelerated after the Crimean intervention and after this showdown with the Western countries. So uh, every quarter, except of maybe one or two cases, after the first quarter of 2012, you can see the decreasing and decreasing economic growth. And then it slipped uh, into recession by the late 2014, and we now have this 3.7% uh, decrease in GDP in 2015. Uh, what uh, can be said about the next step, uh, the, the, uh, how this crisis will develop? Uh, I would say that uh, I doubt that we will see more profound uh, slowdown or more profound uh, decline in 2016. But for me, if it, if it is quite uh, compatible uh, with uh, what happened in 2015, uh, one can be sure that we are on the solid downward trend uh, in the development of the Russian economy. I cannot see any catastrophic scenarios 
even uh, if uh, there is a thirty dollar per oil, we will see just slow, uh, more profound slowdown, but without any repetition of 2008-2009 crisis, not to say about 1998. Because uh, this time um, we will see the declining um, private consumption expenditures, we will see the drop in investment, but it will be gradual. Uh, the, uh, the Russian economy and the Russian government has a lot of uh, means uh, to, you know, to slow down the crisis. They can print a little bit money from one to two percent of GDP, as Sergey said earlier uh, today. Uh, they can raise taxes on um, uh, oil industry. They can somehow economize on the budget outlays. So, in any cases, I would say uh, in 2016 and 2017, you will see uh, a new portion of slowdown by from three to four percent per year. Inflation will definitely rise, maybe to 15% or so. But uh, the main point is that, of course, uh, all this will happen, from my point of view, in any case of oil uh, prices scenario. Because now, even the oil prices can rebound maybe to $50 per barrel, it will change not very much because the budget is very deep in deficit. So it may be deficit of 5% of GDP, but only 3 or 2.5%. But the direction is the same. Uh, and so therefore, I, I cannot imagine any anything to happen which can reverse the situation. For reverse the situation, the oil should rebound not to $50, but $120, which is completely impossible, uh, out of question. So therefore, uh, my point, the first point is that we are now uh, in a long period of uh, economic crisis, which will deteriorate everything that Mr. Putin achieved in, 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 in the first 15 years of his rule. What can happen next? Uh, I would say that uh, I cannot see any uh, real signs for uh, political upheaval, for some political destabilization. Uh, just because, as Clifford said, uh, the, the level of consumption, the level of well-being in today's Russia is completely different from what we had in the 90s. So uh, there is quite huge potential for, uh, you know, for cutting the uh, household expenses, expenditures. Uh, and I think people will never rise up against the cuts of their consumption between 10 and even 30%. So uh, for, for economic crisis developing in the political one, you should have a real deep and profound decline uh, in well-being, 30% or up or more. Also, I, I would say that, uh, of course, uh, when you have uh, huge, uh, you know, quite uh, huge inflation, when you have uh, fixed incomes, so no, no rise in, in the wages, in, in such situation, uh, the, the consequences of the crisis are well distributed among uh, different portions of society. So therefore, there are no special groups which can be the leaders of the protest. And therefore, <coughs> Uh, adding to this all this insecurity and situation when the West is against <coughs> Russia and so on and so on. I, I, I would say that uh, the society can tolerate uh, at least 
from two to five years of such kind of slow economic downturn. So therefore, uh, what, what will Putin do? Of course, uh, he is not an economist, and I would say that he actually uh, devalued uh, a lot of his particular worldview, uh, the role of economic factors. <coughs> he is uh, per, uh, per excellence a politician, he wants to do geopolitics, he wants to, uh, you know, to uh, fight for Russia's interest, whatever he means by that, uh, in Ukraine, in Syria, in Central Asia, and whatever. So therefore, I think that even the repetition of 2015 in 2016 in economic terms will not change his uh, plans uh, in, um, uh, in foreign, uh, foreign policy adventures and in political uh, in, in political course and in, in domestic policy as well. Uh, therefore, I think that of course uh, the ongoing economic crisis will at some point produce the political problems for the regime, but my assumption is that to the very last moment, uh, Mr. Putin and his close aides will not believe in this may happen. So it will be a huge astonishment for them that uh, there is a switch between economic and, uh, and political issues. So till now, they are completely sure that uh, the, uh, the population of Russia can survive and can tolerate more and more economic hardships. So they can uh, raise taxes on business, they can do whatever they want with, with, with the property rights, with the business activities we just saw overnight uh, in Moscow uh, uh, as uh, dozens of you know, small shops were destroyed uh, by the city authorities because of some kind of irregularities of, uh, of the permissions they have. But nevertheless, uh, the Russian government actually thinks it's omnipotent. It can do everything in the economy. Of course, there are hope that the oil price will rebound, but I think the most important uh, factor is that they completely are, you know, out of the out of reality, uh, out of any real thinking with the economy, and they believe everything can uh, go smoothly, even if they will uh, more and more press uh, the private sector and the oil industry. So, therefore, my uh, my uh, my conclusion will be that we will see at least two more quiet years in Russia, quiet in political terms. Uh, in 2016 uh, and 2017, it will be uh, uh, another two year, consecutive years of uh, downturn in the economy. The GDP will, uh, uh, will decrease by around 3.5% this year, and maybe a little bit less next year. But there will be no return to growth. Uh, no political upheaval. Uh, Mr. Putin will have no problems with the election in 2018. And then, after three to five years, we will have some kind of transition from economic downturn to political turmoil, which uh, can appear two, three years inside the new term of Mr. Putin as the president. So, therefore, uh, nothing will change in foreign policy because you should and you need more and more aggressive. You know, uh, rhetorics and foreign policy need more and more, uh, uh, you know, complicated relationship with the, uh, with the outer world uh, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to stay on the course you are. So therefore, nothing can be changed in Russia. So Putin's regime, in economic sense, 
is now on the downward trend and they will by any sense in in any occasion they will not find some possibilities to make a turn. So that's it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a very cheerful picture you are getting. Uh, <laughs> that there's also a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, consensus here. So uh, I'm afraid that I will uh, be rather close to the consensus, but of course I will try uh, to do something to object to it. So my point will rather be that uh, the crisis is, uh, the situation is not as stable. I would argue, as Cliff and Slava said, with a new one rather than a major disagreement, and that the situation is a bit worse than Sergei have suggested. And uh, yeah, let me tell you, there are seats up here for those who are standing in the back. There are several free seats here if you want to sit down. Uh, you can say easily that uh, Russia has three economic problems. The first is kleptocracy, as Slava and Sergei have discussed, means stagnation, or steadily falling growth. Falling oil prices means falling consumption. Western sanctions, there is something that I thought that Cliff and Sergei did not fully emphasize. That is that the Western sanctions mean that there is no new financing. It costs about 65, 80 billion dollars in money that is not available uh, for uh, for Russia. So I think that's far more important than come out so far of uh, our discussion. So what has happened? Uh, Sergei showed it in beautiful graphs. I will just put a few numbers here. Uh, I completely agree with this, but GDP fell only by 3.7% last year. It's really quite an achievement. Uh, I thought that it would be much worse. Why? Because demand fell much, uh, much more. And I picked here some of the key numbers. Investment fell by 8.4%. Uh, Roskomstadt has given me a number, another number than you, Sergei. We can discuss that later, but uh, it has fallen sharply. But what has really fallen is retail turnover and real wages by some 10%. What has not fallen much is uh, what Cliff talked about, the military sector, uh, which is called government consumption, uh, minus 1.8%. And the minus is uh, probably uh, unsocial activities such as education and healthcare, rather than the vital military sector. Russian defense expenditure uh, in uh, increase in nominal terms by 28% last year. So this is where the money is going, and uh, this is not uh, uh, very good. And uh, uh, if we look upon the industrial production, I'll show you here a few graphs uh, with monthly statistics for 2014 and 2015. This does not suggest any crisis at all. It uh, suggests uh, stagnation, the industrial production is jumping around on uh, 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 one spot, apart from the last observation that we shouldn't pay too much uh, attention to. So what does this suggest? It suggests that uh, business people, ordinary people, and the government <coughs> in Russia 
No. But the crisis is something that lasts for one year because it was like that in 98 and it was like that in 2008. Therefore, business has not drawn down production. Unemployment today in Russia is insignificantly more than in the United States, 5.6%. So this is what is not happening. Enterprises are not closing and uh, unemployment is not expensive. But what is falling is investment. And what is falling massively, as Sergei so uh, nicely emphasized, is real wages. This is, uh, 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 it's the people who are being uh, beaten up. And, oops, here I go. Here you see what I think is, uh, is uh, the key. It is uh, the fall in manufacturing uh, has been much less than the fall in uh, consumption. Here I'm taking retail sales because this is what I monthly statistics for. So uh, these are both proxies for uh, consumer production and for uh, con uh, consumption. And this is a big gap. This cannot continue. What has to fall will fall. And uh, therefore, I would expect all these companies that have now produced for inventory to stop producing for inventory, either because they go bankrupt or because they just want to save uh, money, because they realize that the demand is not uh, coming back, as everybody has uh, uh, stated here altogether. Uh, <clears throat> so, what will happen? Oops. So what will happen in 2016? Lower oil prices will lead to further public expenditure cuts. Ever less demand will be the consequence of that, which lead to more output fall. So what I'm seeing here is a bit more of a negative downward spiral than my colleagues here. Uh, and uh, uh, Sergei kindly pointed out that uh, uh, a year ago I expected that we would see a decline of 8 to 10 percent in GDP this year. It didn't happen. But let me then show what, uh, uh, what the IMF predicted in the World Economic Outlook in October 2014. They predicted that there would be growth in 2015 of half a percent. Essentially, all predictions of investment banks, etc., and international organizations were in the same ballpark. That did not happen, and they were 4.2 percentage points uh, too opt optimistic. What do we expect in such situation? I would uh, not go too far, but suggest that uh, social tensions are likely uh, to rise. So, let me put it rather candidly. What is Putin's crisis policy? Uh, uh, a year ago, I thought that it's the reserves, the international reserves, that would be the critical issue. And uh, Putin thought the same, so therefore he made sure that it did not become the, the critical issue. Russia's international reserves were $385 billion officially, at the end, at the beginning of uh, last year, 
at, at the end of uh, the year, or rather right now, is a 372 billion. So the reserves have been masterly preserved. And uh, the, this has been done in this fashion. Let imports fall more than exports. So you can see that year after year, uh, the, uh, this is uh, 2006 to 2007, and what you're seeing is, uh, is uh, the blue bars are exports in dollars, and uh, the brown bars are imports. And you see that the distance between them is approximately the same all the time. It's about 180 billion trade surplus that Russia has each year. So what has happened is that Russia has maintained pretty much its um, uh, foreign trade uh, surplus uh, because exports last year fell by 32% and imports by 37%. What does this mean? It means that the population is This is consumption that is being indirectly hit. So the second <clears throat> point of uh, Putin's crisis policy is to defend kleptocrats and the security sector, which in different words my colleagues have said uh, before. So what does this amount to? Let the people suffer. Real wages down 9.5% uh, last year. And you might recall who pursued such a policy before. This is uh, Nicolae Ceausescu's policy in 1989 to pay back the foreign debt to be independent of the outside world. Here it's to maintain uh, foreign reserves. And uh, it didn't end that very well for Ceausescu. And it came rather surprisingly on the 21st of December to everybody, including himself. So I don't think that we should overemphasize uh, our belief in, in um, uh, uh, stability. What we all agree on here completely is that economic reform is completely out. I didn't even put it on a, on a slide. Uh, what is discussed now is a bit of privatization. But these are privatization of small shares of seven state corporations. Nothing will improve. Of course, nobody will pay serious prices for uh, stocks if you can't get anything. Just look up on uh, Gazprom whose uh, stock prices have fallen by 90% since May 2008. Who would like to buy stocks in such a company? Knowing that no reforms are likely and that uh, uh, already weak property rights are likely to become uh, if, uh, even weaker. Something that has not been discussed here is how decision-making is done now. Because Dmitry Medvedev is uh, chairing the government, the cabinet of the council of ministers, no significant decisions are being made. So the important decisions are taken in either of two forms. Either of the 13 members of permanent members of security council. So there you have 10 KDB generals sitting deciding about privatization and trade policy rather than the economic weakness. This is not ideal. And all they are being made 
in bilateral meetings, one-on-one, -on -one, between Putin and a senior uh, state uh, enterprise manager or, <clears throat> or a minister. If without reasonable economic uh, coordination, you're not likely to get uh, good policy, which is not the end in any case. So what can our dear friend Vladimir Putin do? Oil price is beyond uh, control. I exclude on Saudi Arabia, which would be the most effective way of raising the price. Uh, uh, this is beyond what is possible, and then not much gets accomplished. Why? <laughs> you may elaborate. Then the second is that kleptocracy <coughs> is a core value. You don't uh, question core values. The third is social and defense expenditures that are set to be cut, and that is socially dangerous. But there's one more thing that can be done, which I would argue, that is to ease sanctions by withdrawing from the past. Something is happening in the past, and uh, if you think of it in purely monetary terms, this is probably $80 billion that Russia could get available in foreign financing if uh, it withdraws from Donbass. And when you're thinking of Donbass, think of Detroit or Flint, really attractive cities where everybody wants to. Donbass has Before we park. It doesn't matter. Uh, so these are not attractive places to the uh, political uh, opinion. But um, I would uh, here say that the financial sanctions are important. And I would also say that Russia can't afford all this. And uh, uh, Cliff rightly said that the military cost is too high, but the other indirect uh, costs, they are uh, quite high. Which Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, actually, I, I would love to set off the discussion um, based on what uh, Cliff and, and uh, uh, Slava mentioned regarding the political implications of this economic crisis and whether there is a possibility, maybe not a full-on uh, political implosion as a result of the economic hardship, but um, somewhere between uh, the social tensions that Anders described and political implosion. I mean, after all, we are already seeing significant emigration out of Russia uh, following this period of economic decline. From 2008 to 2010, I read in one of Slava's pieces that um, Immigration was 35,000 people per year, and in 2015 it was 400,000 people. So we are already seeing uh, a real decision made by the people of Russia that this is not tolerable. So what, uh, what can we expect to see in terms of the people's reaction that is not complete complacency? Because I, I don't think that immigration number uh, tells us that the people are being tolerant entirely. So what, what, what kind of uh, political impact can we see? What kind of social tensions under this climate are, are uh, foreseeable? Uh, just, just Slava, maybe Cliff? Okay, I, I will just uh, make a very short remark. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not uh, direct immigration figures. It's the figures uh, which show uh, the you know, inflow or outflow of persons from Russia. So uh, what they show, they show that first of all, a lot of uh, migrants who came uh, to Russia for work are going out. 
because there is no work and it's not so profitable to stay there. And of course, the net emigra the immigration of middle Russian citizens is also on, uh, on the rise. But I would say this point is, of course, showing that the regime is doing poorly in a economic sense, but at the same time, it uh, even uh, strengthens the political uh, stability of the regime because as more, uh, as more uh, people are, uh, who have active uh, uh, positions in life, who are self-made, who have uh, maybe their own businesses or who were uh, managers in some other businesses, as much as people are going out of the country, so the pressure on the government is decreasing rather than increasing. So the problem with the Soviet Union in the late 80s was that no one could actually afford to, to emigrate or very few food and therefore uh, the only option for the people will to change the system in where they live. Uh, today you have very easy option just to leave the system, not changing it. And uh, the people who are going out of Russia will be substituted by low uh, quality workers from the post-Soviet states who will be very grateful to Mr. Putin for allowing them to come. So therefore my prediction is that immigration is actually a salvation from Mr. Putin not the challenge uh, to, to, to his current policies. Yeah, that's right. Um, I remember when I first read Slav's article, I don't know, which, it was one article where he talked about these migrations. That are, and, and it's right, I mean, I've been just calculated. Relatively speaking to the population, Norway had a worse problem than Russia. And people weren't leaving either Russia or Norway because of any regime discontent or any of that stuff. They were leaving because the oil price tanked from $100 or hundreds whatever dollars a barrel down to, to what it is now. They, were, they lost their jobs, you know, there was, it was economics. So they go back to their home countries, in the Norwegian case it was going back to Poland, in the Russian case. And Sweden. Case, and Sweden, <laughs> and Sweden, yeah. But, um, and as Slava points out, this, this is a different story. Now, we don't have the statistics on the actual Russians, including highly educated, creative class Russians who leave the country. They don't have to be very many, we're not talking about big numbers that need to be there to have an impact on the economy in the long-term future. But Slav is absolutely right. This is the great safety valve that Russia has, that Putin has, that the Soviet leaders didn't have. So it's a plus there. Now on the political discontent, I mean, I just, my point is, I don't think we can, we can predict these things. We've seen, if you go from country to country where there have been all kinds of revolutions, sometimes it's when things are going well and uh, the aspirations are frustrated and uh, you know, it sudden turns down. Long periods of economic depression, do they create revolutions? I'm sure we can find some examples somewhere, but it's just very, very difficult to know. Now, one thing I have to disagree with, I think Slava, you said that you don't think, you think that uh, Putin and, and the people around him underestimate the protest uh, potential of economic crisis. They'll, they'll be shocked when it happens. I have the opposite sense. I have, they exaggerated. They, they're, they're looking for problems around every corner and any, any indication of political unrest, protest or whatever is stamped as a vulnerability that has to be dealt with. That doesn't mean, being aware that there is a problem doesn't mean they know how to deal with it. But one approach, and this was very well um, shown in Sergei's slides, I think as well as Anders, that the big difference between 2008 and 2009 and what the government did and what they did in 2014-15 was back then in that crisis they let jobs fall and output fall 
and kept incomes up. There was real income growth despite this incredible, same, same proportional fall in the oil price, actually same literal fall, absolute fall in the oil price, but they kept income, real incomes grew. This time they do the opposite. They let the incomes take the hit, but keep the jobs. And specifically keep the jobs where? In the heartland, in the Euros, in Western Siberia, in the big defense industrial cities. That's the meaning of this defense industrial procurement program. It's not, it's not primarily to produce weapons. That's uh -huh. like a side effect. It's to produce jobs. It's to keep jobs. You keep cranking out the stuff. It's those, I, I spent my whole 1990s studying Russian defense industry and wrote a book about it, but it's, it's the same places. This is my structural legacy argument. These places still are there and they don't really make a lot of sense, at least in the size they are, but you got to keep them going. And Putin has, after 2011 and 12, and the protest of the creative class in Moscow, is very clearly said, screw these people, my constituency is out there in the heartland, it's the Igor Kolomonskis, it's the Ural Vagon Zavod, these are my boys, and these are the ones that I'm going to support. Now, that's a, that's a strategic choice that Putin is making for exactly this reason that somebody's going to feel the crunch here, and I want to make sure that it's the least dangerous pensioners or, you know, the rural population of Russia. What are they going to do, right? These, these people stuck on the, on the farms out there in these little villages. What you're really afraid of is the big industrial cities. And that's, that's I think, the, the choice that was made. People care. If, if a Russian has a job, they are sort of protected. You can take all kinds of hits when it comes to income. If you lose your job, you lose all kinds of, you know, social network. Every the safety net is these big factories, especially in the big industrial cities. It was before, was in the 90s, during the virtual economy days, barter and all that, and it continues to be so. Uh, sorry, uh, on a question about the oil prices and how uh, Russian policymakers thinking about oil prices factors into their strategy for dealing with the prices, do we know? whether they expected oil to go as low as the high 20s this year? And uh, do we know at all what their perception is about the outlook for oil prices going forward? OK, good question. But let me start with political consequences, if you allow. But I do not believe, I do not believe that even uh, long-term stagnation or uh, recession Russian economy will cause any political consequences. Uh, despite dissatisfaction is growing and very recent results, so sociological polls they demonstrate that support of the broad government, not only supporting himself, but of the prime minister, of the government, of governors, of the, so the parliament, is declining sharply. Nevertheless, it will not result in, kind of, in political appeal. And vice versa. Uh, the political protests of 2011-2012, they were on the basis of the rather good economy. Mm -hmm. By that time, the economy was in a good shape. And it was, protests were not caused by economic uh, situation. Uh, what I what I foresee, what I foresee, that dissatisfaction by all political decisions, dissatisfaction by the policy of the government, will result in a very surprising uh, vote in September on the uh, majority on the parliamentary elections, when people will vote for parties. We have a 50-50 system, and uh, on proportional system, when people will vote for the parties, United Russia may get very low. Nevertheless, uh, United, United Russia will be able to control the Duma because of the majoritarian districts. Nevertheless, it will be a uh, first surprise. Next surprise, if the situation continues to deteriorate, uh, Mr. Putin may face the second round of elections in March 2018. Nevertheless, he will win, 
Because, uh, okay, uh, can, can any of you be an Olympic champion or for 100 meters running? No. Oh, yes, you can. If you are allowed to choose your opponents. <laughs> no, Mr. Mr. Putin himself decides who, he, who are his competitors in a presidential run, so he will win that. But nevertheless, that, that will be that will be political protest. People will vote. People will not go all the streets, but people will vote against their own party. On the oil price, uh, uh, someone said that Russia, Russian government believes that oil price will go up, and that is the key, the repeat of the 2008-2009 crisis. And many of them believed. So Russia, Russian economic thinkers, uh, decision makers, they uh, are afraid of the past crisis of 2008 of 98. This crisis is different. And in fact, I believe that if oil prices are stable, let's say 45 or 50 dollars per barrel for 10 years, Russian economy will continue to decline. Uh, the current situation uh, is, as, as I said, uh, the, the key, the key negative beneficiary, the key loser of the decline in oil prices is federal budget. So Russian tax system is organized in such a way that federal budget absorbs something like I don't, 60 to 65 percent of uh, increasing oil prices. But federal budget loses 60 to 65 percent when oil price goes down. The economy has adjusted, budget not. And uh, currently, uh, the government is able to not to balance, but to um, keep the budget without cutting expenditures with oil prices of 35 dollars per barrel and budget deficit grown to 5.5 percent of GDP. They have a stress stress forecast, not scenario, but stress forecast with oil price of 25 dollars per barrel but they cannot put the budget in place. Mm -hmm. So no one can even calculate what will the magnitude will be in the budget deficit and how to finance it. So they are afraid of low prices of oil, but all forecasts are done on the level 30, 35 to 40 dollars per barrel. Mm -hmm. and, and President Putin's uh, speech this year, the annual news conference, he said that his forecast for GDP this year, next year, 2018, is based on $50 per barrel. Uh, official, it's not his own, it's official forecast. Official. It's official forecast of Minister of Economy. <coughs> but uh, let's say we don't know, we don't know the oil price. For example, in the beginning of last year, oil was uh, something like $35 as well. <laughs> but in the middle year, it grew up to 65 and the average price for the last year was $51 per barrel. So nobody knows what, it, what is the oil price. Official forecast is still based on $50 per barrel, that's true. But the official forecast is used only to calculate the budget, that's it. No, no, no other value. And one final question uh, on my part, and then we can go to the audience. Uh, the state of the state-owned enterprises, which are really at the heart of the kleptocracy that Anders is discussing, a couple of years ago, uh, Vladimir Putin said we would reform the state-owned enterprises. And during this economic uh, period, it seems like there is a consensus on a panel that there will not be reforms uh, in the foreseeable future. But what what's happening with the SOEs? Mostly these are commodities, uh, these SOEs in this period of crisis. Well, uh, I think that the big thing that happened was uh, that the head of the railways, Vladimir Yakunin, was sacked in, uh, in August, which is uh, one of, uh, say, ten top uh, KGB generals that you thought couldn't uh, be sacked. And at the same time, Gazprom and Rosneft found that their uh, excessive capital budgets were sharply tightened. And this is obviously coming from Putin himself. Uh, that the state enterprises cannot uh, get uh, unlimited uh, volumes of uh, money any, any longer. We've also seen that other projects like uh, uh, the massive power of Siberia uh, pipeline project uh, 
in eastern Siberia have been closed. So they are forced to bail tightening. A great surprise, but we don't see any reports. Thank you. Um, now, for the audience, if you could please raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation, please, in the back. Uh, Alan Kafruni from Panels and College. None of the panelists have spoken about any possible import substitution. What uh, <laughs> you do read about this in agriculture and uh, in industry? So, um, is it because you don't think that, that there is, or you just haven't? Uh, you say import substitution is capacity constraint. Uh, in August 2014, President Putin banned, for example, import of Polish apples to Russia. That's a legend that you are in agriculture. And in spring of 2015, you decided to build an apple country. You found money, you planted trees. Where do you anticipate the harvest? Five years from now. That's it. That's the answer. There was only one. Uh, sector that demonstrated import substitution, it is cheese production. Uh, that grew like some 17% last year. But uh, statistics says that it's not only cheese, but so-called in Russia cheese product. <laughs> that does not have any, any animal fat inside. It's based on the palm oil. That's it. That's import substitution. That's the reduction of quality. Nothing else. In the short run. <laughs> On the 17th of December, a big um, uh, 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 press conference, uh, Putin said that uh, 200,000 businessmen had been put in pre-trial uh, uh, detention in 2014, and 83% of them had l lost their enterprises. He did not really suggest any practical resolution of it. This is what... Uh, uh, President Medvedev uh, complained sharply about and promised uh, improvements several years ago. The, so the rule of law has deteriorated so, uh, so badly that it's very difficult to start enterprises now. And uh, one of the stark examples is the Minister of Agriculture, Alexander Kachov. He has a big family enterprise with 16,000 employees in agriculture. And what policies does he pursue? Not only this prohibition of imports, but also restrictions <coughs> on private plots, so that they cannot household plots, so that they cannot have too many animals. So simply the supply constraint because of corrupt behavior by top officials are so severe today that uh, the import, positive import substitution effect can only come to a very limited extent. And the, as you rightly pointed out, that's in agriculture. But I think Kuti mentioned 3% growth in agriculture the production, which is tiny. Oh, yes. Okay, I'm Leah Rodriguez, Atlantic Council. Um, I wanted to ask about the Western sanctions. Uh, all of you spoke about the deeper uh, issues of the Russian economic crisis, and you mentioned that if the sanctions are lifted, there will be, you know, the 80 billion potentially of capital gains. But to what extent do you think the sanctions? Uh, uh, what has been their impact? Uh, how deep has been their impact? Or do you see it as a side issue of, along these broader and deeper problems in the Russian economy? Uh, 
I would say that uh, I would say that uh, they have the side effects, as, as you mentioned, because um, when they were introduced in the South 14, they haven't caused immediately some kind of you know, economic downturn. So I think the, the most important factor is, of course, uh, the domestic policies, which are anti-entrepreneurial, which are really not respecting rule of law and property rights and so on. The second most important part, uh, most important factor is uh, actually the oil prices, and then the sanctions came to serve. Uh, I would somehow disagree with Anders uh, when he says that uh, the withdrawal from Donbass will add 8 billion dollars every year for Russian capital inflow. I think that uh, Russia's economy today is very different from Russia's economy of 2013 uh, because of oil prices, because of deterioration of all the internal economic behavior and so on. So therefore, I think that even the sanctions are lifted, even if they are lifted tomorrow, the big banks and big uh, Western entrepreneurs will not return to Russia because of completely different economic surroundings. So I think that today we shouldn't care so much about this, uh, the sanctions because whether they are uh, enforced or whether they are uh, lifted, it will not be different. Uh, it's <coughs> a change, a significant change in Russia's <laughs> Let me put it like this. Uh, the financial sanctions mean that Russia has to pay off all uh, uh, foreign debt service that is coming to private or public. And that's uh, a substantial amount of the money, even if it becomes less and less uh, for each year. Uh, if not, it would not be necessary. I can agree with Slava that not all the money would be available, but this is an absolute constraint. The oil sanctions are not important in the short term. I think uh, uh, Cliff uh, 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 emphasized that rightly. Something that is not discussed is Ukraine's sanctions on the Russian military production, which are massive, because Ukraine is a big part of the Soviet military industrial complex, <coughs> the Eclipse uh, specialty, and uh, uh, one third of Ukraine's exports in 2013 to Russia was machine building, read uh, uh, armament. So, and these are not full uh, pieces of armament, but uh, parts of rockets, helicopters, airplanes, uh, uh, all kinds of missile systems. So this is hitting uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia harder in the short term, the military production, than the Western sanctions, which uh, are not equally integrated. Jeff Goldstein, Open Society Foundations. You've all talked about the implications of the fall in the economy for popular unhappiness. But what about within the elite? Do you see any signs that the shrinking pie uh, is potentially going to cause problems for Putin, not among the masses, but around the people closer to him? Uh, elites, Russian elites, Russian, Putin's elites, they, they cannot escape. Yeah, they're in the same submarine. So you can, you can you can't escape from a submarine. Yeah, uh, uh, even if you have revolution, you cannot escape submarine. Uh, you can blow it up. Uh, the, the, I would say that the, of course, of course, there is a tension within the elites, and of course, the pie is shrinking. And I would say that the dismissal of Mr. Yakutin, who is the chairman of Russian Railways, as mentioned, was one of the uh, examples of what happens further. Mr. Yakutin was a very powerful person with huge, uh, huge 
budget, huge company, and draining money from the budget every year. And uh, as soon as the pie was shrinking, he was removed by some uh, other reasons, and a technocrat was nominated to his position. With no political influence, he is not a person who will be a billionaire himself, or his, his uh, children will not be billionaires, but he is affiliated to one of Putin's crony, Mr. Rottenberg. Yeah? And that's, that's the, the, what happens. The, the, strongest, the strongest wolves, they, they get the pie. Uh, I would add a uh, very, very short point because I agree with Sergei that uh, Putin's elite, as he uh, said, uh, is quite united and it will not revolt because they are on the submarine. But uh, if the business elite is concerned, which is really completely unhappy with, with uh, what is happening, what is going on, the business elite now looks for and looks for some kind of, you know, uh, of uh, exit strategies. And this exit strategies uh, is, of course, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, it is uh, uh, one of the representation of this exit strategy is the capital outflow, because people are selling their enterprises, they're taking money out of Russia, and they're making special, you know, they are uh, investing it into Western businesses like Alpha Group in, in Great Britain. They are buying real estate. They are putting their money into the foreign accounts for being safe to withdraw if something happens. So, and this is, no one will revolt, the business will not revolt against Putin because it's completely counterproductive. It's much better to take part of your fortune out of the country and, and, and then secure it somehow. It's not about, you will, maybe you have $5 billion now in, in your fortune, it's better to secure $800 million outside the country and not to oppose Mr. Putin than to try to oppose and to lose everything. <coughs> Uh, Eleanor Bachrock, I've worked uh, for USAID, including in Ukraine. Um, a couple of economic questions. Uh, one is that uh, um, even if the oil price were to go up, uh, do we assume that uh, the countries that are uh, cooperating in the sanctions are developing markets elsewhere and may not return? Uh, uh, to in great amounts to the Russian market. Um, and also in terms of wages, you mentioned that an effort for privatization, I guess, to boost the budget, uh, but not much of a market. Is there any likelihood that the government will force workers to accept shares, uh, privatization shares, in lieu of uh, wages? I also wonder if they're creating these uh, foreign policy issues like Ukraine and Syria to uh, distract people from economic problems. Anyone like to take those questions? If the oil price goes back up substantially, investors will come back. They always do. They always have. But markets? Hmm? They'll come back because there's money in the pockets of Russians at retail. What goes down will also go up if the oil price goes up, and it'll go up sharply if the oil price goes up. So it's all dependent on the oil price. In Russia, if the oil rents are flowing into Russia, the investors will follow. They always do. And they don't care what has been done to them before. They'll come back. Not everyone, of course. They got really short memories. But I'm saying our, our the Western it's developing other sources. Other where, where, where else in the world is anything? The world? least. The uh, whole world's in bad shape. When 
Russia grows, it tends to grow faster than everywhere else, so it's, uh, it's quite a quite a lure. I don't. I don't. Uh, I, of course, of course, if sanctions are removed, are lifted, and if oil prices go up, of course, some foreign capital will go to Russia, and uh, China, Chinese capital wants to go to Russia. China is ready to invest in Russia, and Russia is ready to accept Chinese investment, even in natural resources sector. And there is only one small difference: China wants 50 plus one. Russia is ready to give 50 minus one. Let's <laughs> see. That's it. Uh, as to all other sectors, let's say outside of natural resources, I doubt. I doubt that any investor, any serious investor, will not be ready to invest in Russia uh, because of lack of property rights. Even foreign companies they face this problem, and many of them are closing uh, their businesses, are selling their businesses inside Russia. Because uh, even uh, your good relations with state-controlled enterprises, uh, with state, state bureaucrats, will, may not help you. So in my mind, it's. Uh, of course, of course, it will be with some inflow of capital, but it will not change the situation in Russia. And based on the Macron privatization, uh, because uh, of, uh, I, I would say that, uh, and it was mentioned by someone, by someone that uh, it's uh, completely uh, you know, counterproductive to buy some stakes in government control enterprises because you cannot influence them at all. And it's uh, the same joke about uh, 50 minus 1 percent, you can't do nothing. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, the Russian state has a lot of uh, property which can be sold uh, to, to, to the public or to the small entrepreneurs. They have a small uh, government-owned enterprises or locally-owned government enterprises which can be sold. Uh, you can sell a lot of land uh, uh, throughout the country. So there is a possibility to sell something, some part of state property, and to raise uh, quite substantial amount of, uh, of money for funding the budget. But this will not happen, I think, because the bureaucrats believe that the prices now are too, uh, too low, first of all. And the second point is that it's too, you know, too difficult to manage all this small privatization deals. It's not about you know, selling 18% of prospects at one piece. Uh, as your question about the possibility to, you know, to convert some kind of uh, people's wages into privatization rights or property rights for the enterprise is 100% excluded because uh, it will be, uh, everyone will look on this as a real deprivation, as a taking out of its uh, salaries and uh, giving something in exchange. It's complete out of questions. It can happen. Okay, one final question. Uh, Dylan Ruby with the German Marshall Fund. Uh, to extend off what y'all have said regarding um, if the possibility of decline in economics occurs and Putin does feel uh, political pressure and his regime could possibly fall, um, in that scenario does the United States welcome it or are we against it? And what I mean by, and what I mean by that is uh, kind of a devil you know versus devil you don't scenario. Uh, Stephen F. Cohen of Princeton argued that the Russia after the Soviet Union was uh, more dangerous than Russia under the Soviet Union due to the connections we had uh, during the Cold War and due to the fact, as you said, the economy is completely linked to oil. So what we know about Putin versus what, do we, what we know, or what little we know about his opposition, does the United States welcome it, or are we more inclined to like keeping him in power? 
I can answer easily. Uh, this is a question that is not on any government's agenda, so therefore no government has a position on it. <laughs> I'm not American citizen, I'm not well aware about what American Confucian thinks, but what I see is that uh, if there is no Ukrainian issue, if Putin give up Donbass as Anders recommends, the United States will tighten their relations with Putin and will be happy to keep them at power as long as possible. <laughs> well, we are exactly on schedule. Uh, thank you very much all for attending here and joining us, and thank you to all of our wonderful panelists who uh, provided us.